Welcome to the Policy Leadership Series podcast from Resources for the Future. In every episode, leading global decision makers speak to RFF President and CEO Richard Newell about big environmental and energy policy issues. In this episode, Richard speaks to Allison Clements, who recently started her five-year term as Commissioner of FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Their conversation took place on January 25th. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Richard. Absolutely. I'd like to start by discussing uh, your professional experiences leading up to FERC. Uh, your career in the energy sector spans two decades. You've worked on the electric grid and related issues with utilities, independent power producers, developers, lenders, nonprofits, and philanthropies, a really broad experience that you bring to FERC. So how have these experiences shaped your views and how might they further inform and guide your goals and actions as a FERC commissioner? Sure. I did do a lot of different things in the in the my career leading up to this current role. And part of that is because of the era we're in as an energy sector, and that is the transformation and the transition. I came in, I transition's been going on for a really long time. It started speeding up. At the moment, I was getting my professional legs under me and as an attorney in private practice, was anxious to get on to get on the front end of the transition in a world where Law firms, consulting firms, banks, uh, you know, other types of equity shops and, and the energy companies were not yet going at putting full leading in, if you will, to the transition piece. And so after getting my grounding at law firms realized I want to go look at this from a policy perspective, a systems perspective. And I had this luxury really of being at the Natural Resources Defense Council for a decade where after spending some time as an organization's general counsel, moving over back to my roots in, in energy regulatory law, I got the chance to say, not as a market participant, not as a particular uh, state regulator or um, interest group, it was really, okay, if we want this to work, if we want this energy transition to work, and we're looking at FERC, which is the federal agency responsible for economics, right? The economic regulator of the global electric system, as well as gas related responsibilities, you've got to figure out how we make this fair and how it, and how we um, protect customers in the process. And so that's kind of the path I took. I, I, I left NRDC only because I moved out to Utah for six years and, and the, the commute was rough, uh, but then did have the chance to do my own consulting work and, and work in philanthropy. And again, it was just another perch from which to look at this energy transition and say, how do we facilitate this responsibly as quickly as we can, but continue to protect customers and reliability in the process because it doesn't work otherwise? I never thought I would be a FERC commissioner. I think because of the time of the transition, when I started making decisions about my career, I assumed I would be shutting off doors that were state regulators. Of course, the world changes a lot in 20 years, and here we are. And so I feel really lucky to have a chance to be in this role for now. Thanks so much for sharing that. And that uh, does give us some additional perspective on um, what you bring to your time as commissioner. So uh, tell us a little bit about your time at the commission, what it's been like so far, you know, given your background and depth of experience, you know, I'd be interested to know whether or not what you've experienced has surprised you and maybe give us a sense of what a typical day in the life of a FERC commissioner looks like, uh, if you don't mind sharing an example. Sure. Well, as many of you know, starting any job in COVID is weird. 
Um, I, I finally started coming into the office just to make sure this was all real, uh, that I'm actually a commissioner, um, even though the agency is still closed. So um, it, it makes for a different kickoff to the role. But I'd say, you know, no day is typical. Um, we spend a lot of time in the weeds in our decision making process. There's five commissioners. You know, we often say because a lot of political attention that gets put on the agency these days, we often say 80 percent that don't quote me on that percentage of what we decide is unanimous. So there is a lot of just nitty gritty rate design issues, whether it be for a natural gas pipeline, a transmission line uh, and an oil pipeline. And it, that takes a good amount of time. And then we get to spend the rest of the time how we like. You know, I've got um, priorities that for me, I'm lucky align with Chairman Glick's priorities right now in that the commission is spending a lot of time on them and I have a chance to lean in. And right now, some of those include transmission and interconnection policy, which many of you are aware we've got a big proceeding open on. Uh, also, natural gas uh, pipeline application review and, and how we might reform that to update it to reflect the realities of today. And then certainly, you might get into this more, but another priority is just thinking of the way that the impacts of climate change are impacting the system such that we hurry up and and ensure we have the reliability standards in place, the planning mechanisms in place that are equipped to handle the challenges coming our way and that will increasingly come our way. It's, it's, I think you started to jump into this a bit, but give us a sense, uh, you know, uh, which I think you started to do of your goals as commissioner, you know, what goals may have you set for yourself in your time in the commission, which obviously also relates to the, you know, the kind of the commission and where the commission overall is headed. So what new directions would you like to see the commission head in as well? So kind of your personal goals and also for the commission as a whole. Sure. Five years is not a long time for a term. My term, actually, I started it a year after it, it, the clock started ticking. And so for all five of us, we're five individual commissioners with our own set of perspectives. Regardless of what political party we come from, we have different priorities. We share a lot. Um, we also have things we want to emphasize or um you know, not put in that bucket of things we're going to try and cross off our list during our terms. So I came in thinking, gosh, there's so much to do. We need a modern grid. We need to facilitate the grid of the future. And then quickly, when you have to start choosing between, well, should we try and start this docket or this docket? And I will say one thing that is surprising to your previous question is that the staff at the commission are tremendous. They, they are, their collective expertise is, um, I always knew it would be strong. That's what this agency does. It's really impressive. And they have so many hours in a day. And so they're only able to prioritize some set of things. Uh, and, and, and the way that uh, a non-chair commissioner tries to influence those things, you know, we each also have our own uh, perspective on, on how we try and get that done. So with all of that said, uh, to me, it's just catching up these rules. You know, we have a transmission grid that was in large part designed, not built, but designed over 100 years ago, right? The, the, the basics of it haven't changed. You, you look back to times of significant investment in the electric grid, and it came in there were moments over generations when we built up the grid, but a lot of it is 50 plus years old. And the way that these really specific rules about how resources interconnect, you know, what the requirements are for that interconnection, who pays for which part of the interconnection, what the reliability standard means for resources that are inverter based, you know, and instead of conventional resources or traditional traditional resources that hooked up. All of these things are a little bit out of date. And for 20 years, the commission has slowly but surely been trying to take pieces of it and, and update the rules so they work. 
Um, they don't have to be the same for every resource type, but they need to be fair. And there's just a long list, and transmission is at the top of it, of those types of things that need to get done. And then the other issue, priority, I would preview besides transmission, is, is on this idea that, yes, we are economic regulators, and yes, our job is to, quote, uh, on the electric side, um, ensure just and reasonable rates and avoid undue discrimination, which is a mouthful. We have a similar responsibility on the natural gas side. But the decisions we make impact people, and they increasingly impact people. And so when you think about starting with these laws and applying the facts to the law when you're making any given decision, in my mind, raising up the issues of equity uh, for people needs to be part of how this agency successfully regulates on a going forward basis. Yeah, that's really helpful. You brought up the energy transition earlier. I want to kind of bring us back to that. So turning to FERC's role uh, in the energy transition and focusing, let's say, on, on decisions that you expect to see coming over, over the course of this next year, um, what do you see coming in terms of you know, key decisions by FERC um, on the energy system, uh, whether it's the grid or, or natural gas or, or oil infrastructure over the course of this year? That's a great question. And I uh, just to, to make sure I, I phrased it, I've said it in every answer, but to, to put a fine point on the transmission piece, we are going to take action, hopefully, uh, coming out of a broad record that stakeholders have engaged on over the last year. What reforms relative to transmission system planning, interconnection, and cost allocation are required to continue to ensure that the system works fairly and is paid for in, from a fair perspective? I think that we will see action on that in, in the near term in the coming months. That's going to be a really important place for stakeholder engagement. And it's important to say that there are lots of um, energy transition, climate-related, clean energy-related things that filter in to the actions that the commission takes. But our job is to facilitate low-cost, affordable delivery of electricity. And part of reforming transmission is because we have a set of low-cost resources in the form of wind and solar that are far from where people live. And if we make smart investments in transmission infrastructure, we can deliver those resources so the total cost, transmission plus generation of electricity delivered to customers is lower overall. That's the goal. Um, all of those other things come into play because that's where the market is going, and we need to keep our system caught up with the market. Um, otherwise, I also think you'll see action coming out of the commission on what we call our certification policy statement, which is the process, the policy that has guided the commission in considering applications for new interstate gas pipelines as well as related to that, uh, the way that we consider requests for LNG facilities, which has a different uh, different statutory standard to, for review. I think you'll see action on that as well. So one of the things that you uh, just brought up, excuse my, uh, my dog, I'm at home. One of the areas of interest, um, and I think it's fair to say considerable debate, is uh, FERC's role in natural gas infrastructure permitting, and you just brought this up. So give us a sense of some of the key issues that you see FERC grappling with in terms of, specifically in terms of accounting for greenhouse gas emissions in natural gas infrastructure permitting. And also related to that, do you see a potential role for the social cost of greenhouse gases in monetizing those impacts? But there's the kind of physical emissions and then there's potential monetization of that. What are you thinking about there? There's a lot there. We could spend the rest of the time on this question. Under the Natural Gas Act, the Commission's responsibility is to consider whether or not a certificate of public convenience and necessity, which is an approval, 
for a proposed gas pipeline is in the public interest. We have a proxy test for whether or not that standard is met and that this needs analysis that the commission goes into. And what happens is the applicant who wants to build the pipeline comes in and effectively at this point, they show us that they have contracts for off-takers. And if they have contracts for off-takers um, with lots of this is vast oversimplification, they typically historically have been approved, that pipeline been awarded a certificate. Once that certificate is granted, the pipeline company can then use that certificate to get eminent domain authority to go in and, and, and uh, take land to the extent it can't um, get to an agreement with, with landowners to build that pipeline. The policy that we follow, short of regulations, is a, a policy stems back from 1999. So in 1999, hydraulic fracturing for gas was not commercialized. We didn't have this real boom in natural, domestic natural gas production by, you know, an order of magnitude. And we're still operating under this late 90s era where Congress wanted to deregulate parts of the gas industry. We're not in that era anymore. It's a different time and it's a different place. And the policy statement, in my mind, needs to be modernized. What does that mean? How do we think about whether or not a new pipeline is needed? We have a wholesome record, uh, thanks to stakeholder participation, weighing in on that question. And the commission is thinking about next steps coming out of that. There's a need determination. If a pipeline is needed, and this is all related, there's a NEPA analysis, right? So there's a question about whether or not greenhouse gas emissions related to pipeline infrastructure development lives in the needs determination piece. So in light of changing policies across the country, in light of the market dynamics, demand dynamics for this global commodity, should we be taking those things into account what determining in the first place whether or not we need the pipeline? And then if we need the pipeline, what does the NEPA analysis include? And of course, the commission's NEPA regulations are to follow the CEQ regulations. So in a lot of ways, we're looking to other branches of government to tell us how to um, consider uh, and whether to consider greenhouse gas emissions. There's lots more to say about that. It's been controversial, but that's the point we're at right now. That's really helpful clarification uh, for those of us who, even those of us who follow it, the distinction between the needs analysis and the, the NEPA work. And just to kind of review that back, it sounds like the, the place where there's kind of more opportunity and likelihood of change or reform or updating is on the needs part because FERC is look, looks more toward a CEQ and broader federal regulatory guidance around NEPA for that portion. Is that correct? So for example, just to, to focus in, I, I mentioned this issue about social cost of greenhouse gases. Is it right to say that that would more likely come in in the NEPA part if in fact that was part of broader NEPA guidance, or could it also come in the needs part if one was taking a um, kind of a societal need perspective as, uh, it, you know, in addition to a kind of local off-taker need perspective? Sure, certainly we have stakeholders commenting on the record to the latter, to the idea that um, GHG emissions and the use of whether and how to, to monetize the impacts of GHG emissions should be considered in the needs step. Um, that is a question, an open question. Uh, the um, courts have been clear that on the NEPA piece, the commission, at least in some set of circumstances, hasn't fulfilled its responsibility to consider the um, impact of reasonably foreseeable environmental impacts, which includes GHG emissions. And again, the social cost of carbon is a tool. Um, the government has a, an interim um, approach and, and you and others are working on what might come from that. 
the commission finds itself in a place where we need to be making these decisions now. We appreciate these moving pieces and in a lot of ways find ourselves on the forefront of, from my perspective, on some of these decisions where the path is not but important, right? That's helpful. Uh, so sticking a bit with the kind of the interplay of FERC policy and climate policy that may be coming from other parts of government, in April of last year, uh, FERC issued a policy statement clarifying the commission's authority to incorporate uh, carbon prices into wholesale electricity markets, you know, where those carbon prices were being determined at the state level. So do you expect that FERC's policy statement will encourage more states to adopt carbon pricing? And have you seen any significant changes or signs of change coming uh, in the months since the policy statement was issued? I haven't followed the states as closely in terms of, but I have been looking at the regions like the New York Independent System Operator, where discussions around carbon pricing have taken place at um, the, the PJM, which is the, the grid operator from the Atlantic region, having conversations. I know they're happening in other places. Uh, to me, that carbon pricing policy statement memorialized what is true, which is if a region wants to bring up, bring to the commission tariff rules, market design rules that incorporate a value, a price on on carbon, the commission can consider that. It hasn't been done, and, and you know, to be frank, my office hasn't. Um, made having those conversations a priority in the near term relative to thinking about this transmission priority and this gas policy priority. But it remains to be seen whether or not that helps uh, any any set of stakeholders, any set of states in regions to take us up on the invitation to bring it forward. Yeah, thanks for that update. So I want to turn a bit to um, demand side resources. Uh, in recent years, several FERC orders have reduced barriers for demand-side resources to participate in wholesale markets. Um, but what do you see uh, looking forward for demand-side resources uh, playing a role in the energy transition? Um, how have past FERC orders enabled the participation of these resources? And you know, is there additional work for FERC to do on this front? Mm-hmm. I'll answer that question, FERC, as a FERC commissioner and then just someone interested in figuring out the, the effective way to facilitate this transition. And we do have some compliance filings up before us on one of the uh, uh, actions you're referencing, which is Order 2222. So I can't speak specifically to how that's going, although to say the regions are in the compliance phase of following this set of rules that was designed to remove barriers to participation by demand-side resources in wholesale markets. Um, there's a lot packed into that. Can the commission do more? To my mind, yes. Uh, and certainly... There's a lot to do on the market side, on the regional uh, participation by these resources in regional markets. Um, there's also a lot to do on the planning side, and this is a really tough nut to crack. If you think about um, planning for the a future transmission grid, that is going to be expensive, um, and it's going to take buy-in from a, a lot of people, and it's going to take the development of new infrastructure, which is hard. Regardless of what kind of infrastructure it is, you're going to impact people in that process. How do you get all you can get first out of the demand side? How do you make demand more flexible or um, take the opportunity when there are transmission investments that could be avoided by more cost-effective demand side opportunities like energy efficiency and demand response and you name it? Um, how do we consider those things effectively when states have jurisdiction over those resources in large part and the commission's jurisdiction over the transmission planning process 
they don't really run into each other. It's almost like they stop. And then what do you do with this thing in the middle that we're not quite taking advantage of? So that's something that I spend a good deal of time thinking about, you know, outside of that. And this is not necessarily a commission role. So I'll take off my day job hat for a second is, you know, this fight that maybe is passe at this point, maybe is not between build out utility scale transmission and a macro grid or do it all in a distributed fashion. There still is no study that suggests that one of them can do it alone. It is still a yes and um, proposition as far as I can tell. And we have to get the system flexibility on the demand side to support the variability of the resources we're trying to bring online. It's really critical. And I think we could, there's an opportunity to make progress. That's with the state and the FERC jurisdictional utilities and regions that, that, that care about these these issues. I think it's a question for resilience, it's a question for reliability, and it's a question for flexibility to complement what's becoming an increasingly predominant portion of the resource needs. Yeah, so much of uh, this, even the different aspects of this come back to transmission, and you made that connection for us again. I want to, and this has come up a couple of times, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. As you stated er earlier, Commissioner Clements, you know, expansion of transmission lines that can connect, uh, you know, power uh, resource-rich areas uh, to de demand load centers uh, is going to be crucial for the the clean energy transition. Um, and as you stated, you know, FERC is currently considering new methods for addressing transmission expansion and allocation of costs associated with that expansion. Um, what types of, you know, specific solutions is FERC considering, and, and how do you see these? Uh, changes facilitating uh, the energy transition, and I'm I'm sure that there's you know multiple levels of uh, detail that you could go into here, but kind of at a high level, where do you see some of the the key new uh, approaches that could be uh, incorporated by FERC? I'm thinking because we're in the weeds on it right now, and I don't want to tip our hats prematurely as we figure out what some of the answers to the questions you ask are. But traditionally, you had a backbone transmission system. You needed to interconnect a gas plant or a coal plant or whatever plant, and you hooked it up, and the the cost got passed of, of hooking that up, which was sitting relatively close to load, in some cases, unfortunately, close to load. Um, you hook that up, it gets paid for, the cost passed through to customers. We're now in a time where, as you said, you've got these resource-rich areas, and you think about the opportunity to, to build transmission more efficiently so that... A whole bunch of resources know where to go. And in a perfect world, and this again veers from some FERC jurisdiction, you'd have some sense of where the siting difficulties from an environmental perspective, from a cultural perspective, um, from a historical perspective, and any other perspective, you'd have some sense of how to build transmission that avoids to the extent possible those issues and then draws people to it. If you can build the transmission in the um, bipartisan infrastructure law, there's DOE has authority, uh, renewed authority related to the corridor development. You know, is that something that regions can do on their own, appreciating that that is a way to save costs for customers? That's a very high level idea that I think in concept is a great idea. You know, you still get to build the people who are looking to build the transmission, get to build it. It's efficient so that the cost of um, developing resources around it is less, is lower than it might be in some other places. The picking high productivity areas, et cetera, et cetera, it goes on. So that's one area. Um, and then who pays for all of this? Who pays for all of this when you're we're in a new world where I think 
10, 12 years ago when the commission issued our last big transmission rule order 1000, public policies really were the driver of clean energy resources. But we're a decade more later, and now it's just economics. The cheapest resources also are the variable resources or in some combination of variable resources and batteries. And so it's no longer a question just about which state pays for which state's public policies. It's how do we pay for low-cost delivery of electricity? Because those are the resources that are coming online and provide the opportunity. And so you can't cabinet all in the context of public policies. It's no longer there. We've gone well beyond that with you know, market dynamics, utility commitments, corporate commitments, customer demand, um, and et cetera. So that's what we're trying to do this time. We're trying to get it right with, well, being fair, but still not missing out on the opportunity for customers. Each episode of RFS Policy Leadership Series podcast is made possible by listeners like you. This series provides thoughtful conversations with leading experts to better connect and inform our community on the latest environmental and economics issues. And you can help us by supporting RFF. You join us in our mission to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economics research and policy engagement. Learn more about contributing to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. Is one of the things that you um, that you mentioned uh, is the bipartisan infrastructure uh, law, and is that affecting in any way FERC decision making? I mean, obviously that that's um, you know putting in place certainly new resources, um, you know perhaps you know encouraging uh, you know uh, deployment of transition uh, with with certainly with incentives. Um, does that in any way affect FERC decision making? Yes, with lots of caveats. I mean, in some ways, it's TBD, right? The Department of Energy put out a notice of intent or inquiry um, related to some things that are transmission, right? And and there are questions are out there about, and I look forward to engaging and understanding better how a national transmission planning study might filter into um, in a regional or regional plant for jurisdictional transmission planning or not, you know, is that outside of that context? And same with the, the conversation around corridors. There's a lot of things, there's a lot of opportunity for appropriate interaction between um, the agency processes and to ensure that they're talking to each other. Uh, there's also new new authority, refreshed backstop siting authority, for example, which was if the state um, denies uh, the certificate of public convenience and necessity for a transmission line that the commission has a, a path to proving it. I have said, and I've heard my colleagues say similar things, that that authority is not the end-all be-all. In fact, it's something we're all kind of letting sit for a minute because that's not how we're going to get to yes on building cost-effective transmission kind of in this once-in-a-generation need to make a significant investment in our electric grid. We get to yes by working with states towards outcomes that they think make sense and that they buy into, as well as all other stakeholders, including customers. One thing the commission has done is establish a, a FERC neighbor-led task force where we've got representatives from 10 states uh, and all five FERC commissioners together. We've had one meeting so far on planning. We're having another meeting coming up in February. It's an open public meeting where I hope uh, we we put some of these um intangible issues uh, uh, and sticky issues on the table outside of contested proceedings 
so that we don't have to say, oh, but we've got this authority over here to make decisions. Yes, that will arise. Those times will come. But let's figure out a way that we have a path forward on transmission planning that people can buy into before we have to get to that authority. Yeah. I think it's relevant. Uh, I actually have an audience question that's directly relevant here. So I'll just read it. You know, what responsibility should FERC have for locating new transmission lines and what should remain with the states? I guess there's there's a should, but there's also a, you know, I guess a does. What what responsibility does FERC have or or authority for that matter? Could you say a little bit more about it? And you, you actually brought up not only kind of FERC as a as a federal body and states, but also you brought up regional, which kind of lies uh, lies between the two. Maybe to say a little bit about that. Sure. So you've got FERC, and then you've got these um, regional transmission organizations, which utilities have gotten together and voluntarily, or by direction from their states, joined together their systems and said, "Let's have one independent party run this this portion of the grid independently." Those are you know you've got ISO in New England, NISO in New York, PJM in the 13 Mid Atlantic, and they keep there's a few more SPP in NISO and KISO, and of course Texas. States have authority for the siting of transmission. Um, that has always been the division. The commission's authority over ensuring just and reasonable rates for transmission and avoiding discrimination includes within it, as has evolved over time, the authority to require regional transmission planning. The so utilities uh, that own transmission to work together, either within those independent regions that I mentioned or in the places where they don't exist, just utility to utility to come up with a regional plan. Um, and so that, by definition, having that authority overlaps in ways with the state's authority to approve the siting of new transmission. To my mind, the kind of most practical way forward is to have those processes talk to each other. What is the right way for the states to have input at a point in the transmission planning process sufficient to kind of, for red flags to get raised and say, yeah, no, that's not going to go. That transmission path will not go in that state. The problem is, one, states then become the adjudicators at later date and sometimes have to be careful not to weigh in in incorrect ways up front to the federal process. Uh, another problem is at the transmission planning process, you don't necessarily know the route of a line that might be needed to address a particular transmission system need. So there's a lot of issues that we're bouncing around and brainstorming around to say, okay, we have barriers, but let's at least get these processes talking to each other as much as possible. And what does that look like? And does that look the same around the country or might it be different? in Great. I want to dig into uh, another issue, which for those of FERC followers is uh, has come up a number of different times. So there's you know some FERC orders, as you know, that have enabled greater deployment of clean energy resources and others that have, you know, at least to some folks' mind, done the opposite. There's the much debated... A minimum offer price rule or MOPR order, uh, which required state-supported resources to be subject to a minimum price floor in PJM's uh, capacity market. Uh, so the MOPR order is now in the process, uh, I understand, of being uh, replaced with a, um, a focused MOPR. Yeah, it's pending, so we can't talk specifically about it. All right. So you, you, you I guess you preempted my question, which is... Uh, you know, can you talk a bit about the new MOPR? And I, I guess the answer is no, you can't talk. Or can you say anything about the issues that might be considered in thinking about a new MOPR, or you know, why is there consideration of a new MOPR? I'll raise it up a level of generality and say, you know, another thing that these regions do is facilitate regional energy markets and the markets for ancillary services, and in some regions, capacity, which is a forward payment to ensure availability at some time in the future. Uh, 
it is hard to make changes to market rules as it is in any market, right? It, and because of the changing resource mix and the services that the grid needs to function reliably and efficiently, the priorities for the rules that inform those services need to evolve. And there is a lot of effort around what does that mean? So one, you know, common concern is that fuel resources like wind and solar are so cheap that they bring down energy costs. And how can marginal generators recover their full costs if the prices keep going lower and lower? In my mind, there's lots of that's kind of not impending doom. Demand side resources have the ability to participate. And then we also need to define the services that a system needs. We need system flexibility. And how should we pay for that so that the market participants, whatever type of generation, supply side resource or demand side resource might be, how can they compete to provide that service? But we need to evolve these markets. And these markets have grown up very regionally. The design, you know, in New York and New England and PJM, you have some form of a capacity market, which is a three-year or one-year forward market. Um, but they all grew up with their own quirks and changes and stakeholders compromise. And so what do you do to, as a region, from their perspective, as participants in those markets and from our perspective as the regulator of those markets, to evolve that design in a way that strikes some balance, it won't be the perfect balance, between regulatory certainty over time and the ability to change to the services that the system really needs to run effectively and cost-effectively while regions are on a different point in their path in the energy transition. How's that for the plans? <laughs> right, yeah. Thank you for addressing the question to the, you know, to the extent that you can without getting into too much um, specific detail. But I want to I want to switch gears uh, a little bit to uh, talk a bit about grid resilience, uh, expansion and modernization. And you know, over the years, a central focus of electricity policy has, of course, been reliability. Today, we hear an increased focus around uh, resilience. So, please give us a sense of your thoughts about what distinguishes resilience from reliability, what distinguishes them, also how they're linked, and how are they relevant for the broader planning process uh, and the future of critical infrastructure. Sure. Um... That's a lot. Also, these are big questions. Uh, so I had the good fortune of serving with your board member, Sue Tierney, on the National Academies of Sciences Committee back in um, two years wrong, 2017, 2018, or 2016, 2017, on uh, resilience of the electric grid. And that effort, which was um, a report that, that Congress uh, requested, and the members of that committee, uh, most of them were engineers, um, was a very straightforward definition of what resilience is. It's the ability to prepare for in a way that avoids, you know, long duration outages, the ability to withstand them when they're happening and their ability to recover from them when they're done. And then it's the loop back to help it in the future. All of that happened right before the DOE issued what was at the time a politically controversial proposed rule related to resilience and ensuring uh, fuel supply on site. But I feel like we've come back now to just the good old fashioned engineering definition of resilience. We have to be able to survive and more than survive through these experiences. You know, I think Noah said that there were $21 billion plus um, natural disasters or extreme weather events in 2021, uh, which is from the commission's perspective, is certainly one that stands out. Uh, there were the forest fires and the impacts there as well as hurricanes and other events. 
these stressors are landing on a grid in transition, right? And the ability, resilience has to rise up. And, and I think we shouldn't get caught up in whether it fits into um, the exact definition of reliability as it has been, you know, put into the, the NERC standards that to which participants in the bulk power system are, are, are subject or whether or not, you know, whether it's an add-on or it's incorporated into, it's a real need. And there's a need on the bulk electric system side for which FERC has responsibility. And then, of course, there's a lot of need on the distribution side for which states have responsibility. Um, there's nothing more important. I can say more. I, um, we learned so much about it in, in the winter storm Uri situation from the straight good old-fashioned reliability standards and whether, for example, winterization, uh, weatherization and whether or not we have sufficient rules in place there over to resilience needs. and. Um, a refresh of a conversation around coordination between the electric industry and the gas industry when it comes to regions that have a high percentage or a material percentage of power generation fueled uh, by by gas. And from there, there's these critical infrastructure questions. So I'm happy to say more, but I'll, I'll pause there. To what, yeah, just to dig a little bit deeper, specifically on climate, you know, is to what extent is... Um, Kind of future risks and changing risks that might be, uh, you know, uh, due to climate change. We've certainly seen uh, uh, many extreme events. Um, also, you know, scientists agree that, like, looking forward, it's likely that that will get worse. And so, to what extent does that kind of forward-looking knowledge about the possibility for the future uh, issues of resilience to be even greater than the past? How, how does that enter or does it enter into transmission planning, reliability planning? Is is that um, something that shows up in, in, in FERC's uh, decision-making process? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there is a lot we can do in the planning timeframe related to the development of grid infrastructure to help on the resilience front. One of the lessons learned from Winter Storm Uri was that the interregional transfer capability i.e. the ability for neighboring regions to help export power to the regions who are struggling in the cold while they could, while they themselves weren't struggling, was critical to keeping the lights on or keeping outages to short duration. Texas, with its limited interconnection, didn't have that opportunity. We saw what happened there, and we saw the difference between these regions. So that's a lesson that can then be applied into the planning timeframe. How do we ensure that we have sufficient intergenerational transfer capability? That particular question is is not something that's currently in planning, but you know, future-looking planning can do a lot. And then there's the unfortunate lessons we're going to continue to learn in the operations timeframe because we're going to do our best in the planning timeframe to to ensure that we can withstand these events. And then they're going to happen, and we're going to see where we fail. So it's it's this constant effort to keep up. And um, you know, NERC is doing a lot of work on this front. The the, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation um, that just put out a long-term reliability assessment that gets into some of these issues. And there's a lot in there. There's a lot to do. I would say um, it doesn't matter what agency in government you work at right now, that these impacts of, of this need for climate resilience uh, is, is high, uh, has to be high priority. And, and so, yes, it is, it, it is high priority at the commission. We are working on it, I think, as our partner you know, utilities themselves, as a DOE, as DHS and others. And, there's more we can do. I think this isn't a quick question, just uh, we'll, we'll move on, but what kind of a time horizon uh, does FERC or NERC use for thinking about these issues? Does it go out a few decades? Is I mean, is there a, like a set time frame through which you would look? Yeah, I guess I would answer that more in the planning 
Horizon certainly, as, as I mentioned, uh, NERC's long-term assessment looks forward. Um, and and um, I will get the number of years incorrect. Um, one of the questions we asked in the advance notice proposed rulemaking we issued in the transmission planning side was um, how many years forward should planning look? Of course, uncertainty starts to creep in as it does in any planning relative to you know 20 plus years. Um, but there's lots of ways to discount uh, what you think that the likely scenarios are relevant to taking the actions that we can take today to start planning for those things. So there is on reliability standards, not as much. And I think you, you, you ask a good question. There's, there's lots to explore there. Um, but in the, in the transition system planning, certainly. And then remember, we're in a transition time. If these, um, you know, 2030 state laws, corporate goals and targets that they're reporting in their SEC filings, and customer demand continues on the path it's on, there's a, not an end state, but there's a certainly a more continuous state where you're operating a different system reliably. And the question is, what are the steps on the way to that time? Great. Yeah, thank you for that. I want to turn to uh, a different topic. Um, you know, President Biden, as you know, made environmental justice a uh, priority for his administration and issued an executive order uh, early on in the presidency that directs federal agencies to make achieving environmental justice part of their missions. Uh, so could you say a, a bit, Commissioner Clements, about how you see FERC's decision-making and operations uh, changing or evolving to address uh, environmental justice and equity issues? And you know, for those of us who kind of watch some of what's going on at FERC, this certainly has also shown up in some recent deliberations as well. I think you brought it up earlier as well. So say a little bit about your thought on that. Sure. I'll start with, and I should have said this in the answer to the previous question, when things get bad, we know that the communities that are bear the brunt and the worst impacts are those that are already marginalized, whether it be environmental justice communities or otherwise disadvantaged communities or disadvantaged communities, period. The commission has made controversial decisions relevant on to the treatment of in, in the consideration of environmental justice communities when we think about infrastructure permitting, in particular on the gas certification side. We also have authority to approve hydro licenses and relicenses, but the conversation has largely taken place in the proposal for development of new gas infrastructure. We have taken some steps on that side. We can do a better job. Chairman Glick um, has certainly taken important steps in hiring a senior counsel for environmental justice and um, supporting development of the Commission's Office of Public Participation, which is something that's been on the books actually in, uh, in statute for uh, several decades, but for various reasons didn't get stood up and is now there. That doesn't fix what has already been done. It's a look forward uh, improvement, we hope, we intend, um, more than hope, but it's it's a, uh, there is a real need to ensure that when you get back to our conversation around need and NEPA analysis, that we're engaging in sufficient consideration of the impacts of the certifications that we're approving. Broadly on the electric side, and it's also related, the commission's connection is more attenuated because we don't have siting authority in large part for transmission infrastructure. The impacts of those siting decisions are not things that come before the commission. However, everything the commission does has some eventual impact on costs, on price that will eventually show up in customer utility bills. And we know that the energy burden for low-income families in particular is disproportionately large. And we are working. I, I think about this every day. 
how do we better allow those realities to inform our decisions? We make decisions based on what's in the record. We make decisions based on the parameters of what the law allows us to consider. Within the parameters of what the law allows us to consider, there's a lot of facts. How do we ensure that facts on the record are providing as much information relevant to how we make decisions as possible? And I think that's you know something that lots of people in the commission are thinking about right now. Yeah, not being a lawyer, I can I'm I'm starting to appreciate even more the importance of the definition of the word need at FERC, which um, is obviously a, a quite general word, and and how you interpret that and what's included in that needs assessment seems to touch on you know so many of the different issues that we talked about today. I'm sure I'm stating the obvious to somebody who's uh, uh, involved in uh, at FERC as a commissioner. No, you can't say it enough. Related to this, FERC also, as you mentioned, established the Office of Public Participation last year uh, to facilitate public participation in commission proceedings. So could you say a little bit about your vision or the commission at large's vision for this office and how it could change the way deliberations and decision-making is done at FERC? I'll speak to my vision for the Office of Public Participation. I was fortunate to help lead the effort to gather public input on what it should be, um, where stakeholders want help from the commission. There was a lot of consternation around what the role of the commission might be or what the role of the office might be within the commission. To me, it's pretty straightforward. We have these set of proceedings in which we make decisions. They're hard to intervene in. You have to do the intervention, right? You have to figure out how to do it online. You have to follow the right form. You have to do it within before the right deadline. You have to um, understand some pretty technical issues that then have more general implications that you're concerned about. And it's resource intensive. We should help people participate in those proceedings. We should have a full record. I had never thought that the, the office would be an advocacy office. We now have a new director and, and she's and has her own vision for what it will be. And she will take it forward and develop it as it does. To my mind, it's not to create kind of a separate world where we bring members of the public who are concerned about our decisions it's allowing them access to our proceedings. And if we have more facts on the record, we will make better decisions. We won't always agree with everybody who intervenes. And, and I don't know how often we will. We're, we're only at the point now where we're answering the initial questions about how to get involved. And we, so that remains to be seen. But I think we'll have better decisions and they'll be more durable uh, if people have the chance to actually constructively participate. There's also a piece of it uh, that I think can be community engagement to communities that are implicated by our decisions. Uh, and that is most intuitive on the infrastructure side, on the, on the gas infrastructure side. That's not the role of the office isn't to replace the role of applicants for new pipelines upon whom it's incumbent to engage with communities in a constructive way. But it is meant to help gather best practices, which a lot of, a lot of companies have our offer on, to bring them together in digestible ways, to share them with others, and to help members of communities understand processes and, and the way that the commission is. So I'm pretty excited about it. And I think Ellen Katz, who's the new director of who used to be a consumer advocate in Connecticut, is going to be a great leader. We need good people. And I think for all of you who have teams that are out there hiring and recruiting, being a transmission engineer is cool. It has to be, right? We need it. Understanding the minutia of these policy deviations across states and regions is critical and you can combine it with that kind of entrepreneurial startup spirit that attracts so many people to business. There is tremendous opportunity there. And as you look at DOE trying to hire a thousand people to implement this law 
And then all of the rest of your companies and you know, your organizations and our commission need to hire good people. In my mind, this, you cannot spend enough time right now on trying to encourage smart young people to get into what might otherwise seem like a very uninteresting career path. I think it just has the opportunity to be thrilling. Well, I, I think uh, given our time, that's actually a great uh, note to end on and absolutely agree. While we've been, for those of us who engaged in these issues for many decades, while we have spent a long time on it, the amount of work that still remains to be done um, and the amount of change that is occurring and will be occurring over the next several decades is uh, going to require a lot of talent and time. And so I agree with you 100 percent on that. Uh, Commissioner Clements, you know, my really sincerest thanks uh, to you for a, a candid and insightful conversation. Thank you so much, Commissioner Clements. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. Take care. That was Richard Newell, President and CEO of Resources for the Future, in conversation with FERC Commissioner Allison Clements. If you like what you heard, remember to like or favorite RFF's Policy Leadership Series podcast on your podcast platform of choice, where we will release new episodes with leading environmental and energy policy decision makers. You also can find recordings from our Policy Leadership Series events at rff.org pls and receive updates about RFF's events and podcasts at rff.org subscribe. The live event was produced by Sarah Tung, Donnie Peterson, and Justine Sullivan. Music is from Blue Dot Sessions. RFF podcasts are managed by me, Elizabeth Wasson, and made possible by you, our listeners. You can contribute to RFF today by visiting rff.org support. Thank you for joining us.